before we get into this week's episode, I just want to address my um, last week's non-submission of an episode, and that is because I was at the uh, DECA ICDC, or just the international competition for DECA, um, in Orlando, Florida, so I was not able to upload an episode as I was extremely busy trying to catch up on schoolwork, prepare for, prepare for AP tests, and prepare for the conference and do all those types of things. So I'm very sorry about that. Uh, but fortunately, uh, th- this episode is obviously here, and I will have another episode addressing my experience at my DECA conference uh, coming soon. So once again, sorry for the inconvenience, and hope you guys can uh, enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Lights On Show. I'm your host, Jacob Morissette, and this is a podcast about self-development. In this week's episode, I talk with Scott Darby, an AP government and politics teacher. In this episode, we talk about the importance of being politically active and some ways and means in which you can become politically active. If you guys enjoy this episode and bring some value to your life, please be sure to follow me on Twitter, and please, please, please leave a rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on. All right, Darby, so uh, how do you feel right now? I'm feeling pretty good. Um, I'm pretty, this has been a long time in the waiting. I think this is uh, the third scheduled appointment we've quote-unquote kind of had. Yes. So finally we able to get it in. Uh, it certainly has been a busy time with AP testing coming up and certainly all the disruptions that we've had. It's made it, it has made it pretty difficult. But uh, it's okay. Cause, good, uh, good. You know, we, we have forgive and forget and obviously you're here with me now. So let's kind of get right into it. Just let the audience know kind of who you are, describe what you've done. Uh, what you study in college, why you are the way you are now. Sure. Just kind of brief. Go. I've always been interested in history and kind of government type stuff. Even when I was a little kid, uh, I read history books for enjoyment, which is uh, certainly unusual for eight and nine-year-olds. But uh, certainly I decided to pursue that passion. Um, graduated from the University of Washington with degrees in history. Diplomatic history was one of my areas of expertise and also political science. Uh, foreign policy, American foreign policy was my area of study. Uh, after that, I worked for, a, uh, did an internship with a congressional um, congressman here in the area, and then I uh, got parlayed that into a job for a while. Then he lost his election, so I decided to go back to grad school. I went to uh, the University of Kansas. I've got a master's degree and a MBD in political science. All righty, so. Obviously, you are a uh, AP AP Gov teacher right mm-hmm. now, so AP uh, United States Government and Politics. So, what kind of led you to becoming a teacher? Because I think that's kind of a main that's going to help people really truly understand who you are is getting the perspective of why or how you became the teacher that you are now. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting story because I would have never guessed I would have become a teacher, uh, even in college itself. Yeah. Um, I when I went to the University of Kansas, I got a TA position, which is I was teaching undergraduate uh, entry level, 100, 200 level uh, American politics. And that was actually the most fun um, pro- part of being in grad school was actually being with students and actually discussing and getting them excited about it. And um, that's how this, I guess I got the teaching bug. And so when my then girlfriend, now Ooh. wife, Ooh, okay. was a teacher. She suggested, why don't I tr- uh, kind of transfer that love that I had for teaching political science to the high school level? And I, that's how I've been here for 20 years now. You just kind of, oh, I mean, that's always nice to, to know. But I kind of, I think also we talked about it's fun. And is that because 
you are so passionate about politics anyways, it's able for you to almost release that passion. Yeah. Because I feel like being a congressional assistant, you can't really show, you can't really let the passion just ooze out of you. But, but being the teacher, you can. Certainly, so. uh, one of your major parts of being a congressional aide is that you have to be and put yourself into the shoes of your employer, your boss. So you're not really allowed to have your own opinions. You are standing in in place of your boss. Certainly when I get excited at talking about the issues that are important to me, um, Certainly, my voice gets a little bit louder, and I get a little bit more excited on those types. Take off your glasses. Take off my glasses. I may even break them every once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I I think when I get to discuss things that I'm passionate about, um, you know, that really brings me to life. I mean, that just kind of sets me off to the core. Uh, And I, you know, when I go home, I, I just. Can't wait to come back to the get to work the next day. And yeah. I know for it sounds kind of corny, but I really do enjoy waking up in the morning, knowing that I get to talk about the things that I love to talk about, and I got a captive audience for four yeah. periods out of the day that we are going to discuss things that are important to me. I also think there's another part. I think with seniors, they're making that transition from childhood to adult, and before. The things that they see that go around them kind of gives them a curiosity of why things work the way it does. Why doesn't it seem fair? High schoolers have an uh, innate sense of fairness and an innate sense of justice. And that really starts coming to a head when they're senior year and they start discussing and seeing why they work that way, why they're doing the things they are. They really get curious about that. And so I think when I see students get excited about that, I think that has a lasting impact that they have that same curiosity about finding out more about the way the world works and questioning and maybe even going to say, how can we make it better? And so I kind of feel it's my civic duty. Uh, This is my lasting imprint that maybe some of the things that they are learning in the class and that we're discussing, what I'm making them excited and curious about, that they're going to be going off and making those changes that we don't desperately need. And I can't wait for the first time that I get to actually cast a vote for one of my ex-students. And that's going to be, to me, kind of the pinnacle where I get to cast my vote for that uh, person that had an impact shaping their political development. Yeah, and... You know what's so funny is that Miss Olson talks about that, too. She talks about how the act of teaching, it gives her pride. It makes her feel happy that she's impacting society and that it is, it's one of the things that the founders wanted. That's, I mean, that's kind of the reason. I mean, obviously, the Electoral College is kind of a controversial topic, but the founding fathers wanted well-educated and uh formal decisions being made about government. And so teachers like yourself or teachers like Miss Olson, they... Um, that's like what the, you know they believe they're doing that, and I would say that you are doing it. So it's just kind of cool to be able to see that comparison without you guys even talking about it together. But you both ended up yeah. talking about how it's an important duty that is you guys feel like are being carried out, and that it's not it's bigger than just the classroom. It's bigger than the grade. It's it's about the rest of the civilization of America and the history. I think you make a good point. I think a lot of people think social studies is about just memorizing names and dates. And that's not what social studies, at least that's not what good social studies is. When you're studying social studies, it's about being able to weigh the evidence and come to well, uh, 
you know, uh, decisions yeah. based on the evidence, based on the discussion, based on compromise, based on all sorts of things that you're able to take that in and you're able to make a, a, a decision of a, for the betterment of society. And, and I think the good social studies has that bigger picture in mind that forces students to look at that bigger picture rather than just memorizing dates and names. Yeah, and that, yeah. I, I would argue that's the least important stuff. And I would say the same thing. Memorizing the Constitution is not that important, but understanding how the Constitution um, basically channels our discussions and that how it, it really is kind of a guidepost for our arguments and how that works, I think is more important. Oh, absolutely. So kind of segueing, seg waiting, I think that's how it is, um, into the actual written down questions I have, but um, how can people benefit from being politically active? Like what type of, um, we always talk about this in the voting type of thing, but not what type of, um, what's it called? We literally just talked about Participation in different ways. It's like, what's like the reward? Like what could be a good incentive or like why is it important that we are politically active. Well, and I, I think really you get to the point, it's got to be intrinsic. And that's the motivation that you have to be a part of and actually care about the larger society in itself. And we are a democracy where citizens are an integral part of that. Uh, you know, we talked about in class, maybe some other countries that, that, that put some sort of monetary fines that if you don't vote or don't participate in the process. But to me, a democratic society is a willingness and an understanding that citizens have a responsibility, you know, intrinsically yeah, yeah. to participate in the process and understand, okay, that you are a part of the larger discussion and shaping that larger discussion. Um, you may not always win, and you have to understand that. And that's whatever problems is that we expect to win 100% of the time. Yeah. But in a democracy, you're part of a larger compromise between, as Madison says in Federalist, Federalist 10, factions that are coming to a, a compromise between these different groups. And that's really what a pluralist democratic society and being a part of it, I think, is all about, that you are a part of the discussion. You are part of shaping that decision-making process. Now, we are a republic, of course. Yeah, but again, yeah. when we look at those linkage institutions, the way that those uh, elections and the political parties and the interest groups, that, again, via these avenues that you could play an integral part in shaping those decisions and that discussion and you got to play a part of that yeah because i feel like um i mean we talked about this in in class too and this is kind of where a lot of the questions i have come from is the inspiration from uh class discussions um but i think a lot of today we have this idea of our vote doesn't matter and that voting isn't going to do anything anyways. Like we, we don't have a direct democracy or blah, blah, blah. All this garbage that are kind of deterring people from trying to do the super simple registration when it comes to some states at least. I know some are a little harder, but still nonetheless, I mean, you have a good point that it's this idea of like it it shapes the what we do. If you vote for a certain president, you, you know, you do have a voice and you do have the ability to change America. And if you if you have an opinion, you should vote. That's right. There's always, and, and with the factions, right, in Federalist 10, there's always going to be a group of people that has a similar interest to you. And even though you may be small, getting your voice in there can 
amend a bill. It can get that one small little win that you need, and then then you can be happy. You well, can get what you want. And we've talked about you know how important agenda setting is. Yeah. And so even the politicians understand the voice of the people and getting them on their side is it is it a huge leverage piece in the political process. And so I mean that right there shows you the importance that people play in the process. Um, you know, we talk about voting, but there's so many ways that you could participate in our process other than voting. And I, you know, I get the idea that if you live in Washington state and you haven't seen anything of value towards the electoral college in 30 years, I get that Mm -hmm. uh, and how that, but there are so many other ways besides voting that you could participate. And in some ways they're probably more effective and more influential than actually the vote itself. So I, I, I mean, I, I, I get the idea that people who don't vote, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't be politically active. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And we've talked about it. Sometimes not voting is a political act. Uh, maybe you're sending a political message that you're not agreeing with either of the two major parties and you won't participate in the winner-take-all process uh, of that. That doesn't mean then you need to be alienated from the system. And I think there is a difference between voting that are people not voting for a political purpose and those people who are voting because of a lack of efficacy, which we've talked so yeah. much about in this class, about one of the number one reason Roy Teixeira talks about this uh, from Stanford, talks about this idea, this lack of efficacy, that your vote no longer matters because they don't listen to you. Well, if that's the case, there are other ways that may be more effective to get the attention of politicians that you can influence what they're doing. And when you say that, I kind of think back to the Washington State example. Uh, for people that maybe don't know, Washington State's a very uh, democratically controlled, democratic controlled uh, state. And so you have a good point that maybe voting Republicans aren't going to do anything, but you could always donate five dollars to the Republican candidate, and then that can then influence the swing states. So you do have a really good point. Like there's always an option to there comes the glasses, they're coming off, <laughs> <laughs> but there is always a way um, to still have an impact, right? Like, I think that's a perfect example. Right. If you give $5 or maybe if you're able to donate a little bit more, that, be, that $5 could be what helps that candidate buy an ad that can influence a swing state. Well, and, you know, not only that, but you could work on a senatorial campaign yeah. to ensure that we have divided government. If you know that there's a chance there's going to be a Democratic president, then it behooves you then in your interest and to ensure that you block the ability of that Democratic administration to get mm-hmm. through. Uh, you might work extra hard then on a campaign to ensure and increase the chances of a senatorial uh, candidate winning in this election, which may tip the balance then of the legislative branch, again, providing a check then on the president through uh, the political party system and divided government. Absolutely. So, And then plus you also have the um, – on the state level too, we have states which are ran um, – they are ran um, like the, the votes of the citizens go directly into yeah. – um, like so there's no like electoral college type. Yeah, there is nothing um, yeah, as, it's, far it's as a popular direct, vote. It's a direct it's democracy a popular part. Vote. Yes, and I'm not sure if this is quite that big of a problem, but I think if people might see that as a problem to not vote at least in their local level, that could also be like just this clarification of, and understanding that their vote could potentially be that one vote that swings over a policy change that you may or may not want. Yeah. And then the same thing with local elections. You can fund local mayors or local um, you know, in, in-state senators or in-state congressmen. There's well, tons certainly, of options. Certainly when you're talking about a presidential election that may have, what, 40, 50, 60 million 
participants yeah. coming out uh, nationwide. But if you're in Roy, Washington, you're only going to be one of a few hundred votes. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, numerically, uh, weight-wise, you have a much more of an important say through your voting process at these local governments versus the national. And I think uh, uh, people get lost in that state government um, is really where all the action that impacts your daily life. And Tip O'Neill said it best, all politics is local. The idea that uh, most of the things that impact your daily life from the types of roads, the, the types of education your kids have access to. It's like uh, most taxes. It, it, most taxes is all done here at the local level. Um, we get fixated on the role of the presidency, I think, sometimes, and the role of the national government. Uh, but, you know, when you get down to it, the states are probably much more important to your daily life than the national government. And that's why we have federalism. That's, that's why the United States was set up on which, – uh, which federalist paper was it that talked about federalism? Well, it's certainly the 10th Amendment yeah, it, that talks yeah, about yeah. The, this. Uh, it talks about in Federalist 51 as well with the mm-hmm. checks and balances. That we have that dual checks and balances, yeah, have, vertical, yeah, and, vertical horizontal. and horizontal. Right. Yeah. Um, and then um, – I think you kind of may have kind of shifted this, but how has being a congressional aide or how has being in politics um, shaped like your knowledge? Because obviously you can learn a lot from in school, but like it takes like sometimes people have to learn on the job experience. So specifically what from your congressional days kind of shifted a lot of your like attitudes or like your skills that you've developed that you use now? Certainly about how in politics, how it reality works is far different from the textbook version. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly when you talk about the the log rolling deals that go on between congressmen and the some of these back channel things, just the idea of relationships, uh, textbooks can't capture uh, that how important that is in the process of getting things done. Um, I mean, the system officially is set on checks and balances, and you have to have these unofficial tools, these things that aren't talked about that is built on lasting and and trusting relationships between individuals uh, to get things done. That's really what the the breakdown in our system is, is the breakdown of relationships. It's nothing different that's constitutional. Um, The Constitution is the same Constitution of the 1950s. Uh, Obviously, things have changed as far as interpretations, but the, the basic structure outline in the Constitution hasn't changed that. It's the relationships that they've had and the breakdown in the relationships that's really t- uh, had this impact, negative impact on polarization. And I, I'm not sure that textbooks really understand um, that soft power rather than the official stuff and how important that is in the political process. When you're in it and you see this working, uh, that's something that's really difficult to explain uh, to students. But certainly a shape that that is just as important yeah. to understand that part as the constitutional and the official rules and the structures of the institutions themselves. Um, I, I would say that's probably the, the biggest thing that I noticed the difference between being in politics and being on the outside talking of about politics. politics. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really good uh, point, too, because, like, the – I think specifically where you worked at with, like, congressional stuff um, and, and the way that you do teach your classes, you don't really – I mean, obviously, we do all of our homework through the textbook. But the way I've always looked at all of our homework in this class is we have the textbook interpretation, we have the little textbook interpretation, and we have your interpretation with your Darby Note textbooks. And my it, diagrams. And, and your diagrams and the things that you've made. So 
we get all three perspectives. And yes. I think that's why your class is so famous, at least in this channel area, because everyone talks about, oh, you're going to take AP Go with Darby your senior year. You're gonna take, like the whole, this whole general Graham Spanaway Eatonville area knows about you. And I think it's because you do have those experiences that allow you to open up that third perspective. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about, right? Perspectives. Yeah count for a lot and i think you can't understand the process without understanding yeah. that third way mm-hmm. the, the non and the, the stuff that's not in the textbook because that is such the important part of our governmental system that it's talked about to some extent but rarely understood you have to uh, be able to feel it and yeah you, you help us feel it well that's good i'm yeah. glad to hear that because that is the political game uh, and certainly there's a lot of good good books out there that discuss it hendrick smith's power game is one of my favorites that talks about that insider um relationship based process mm-hmm. that uh at least allows things to get done when and it's better guys or and now what we're at now polarization that's preventing the system from working is you know hyperpartisanship is is really corrosive uh, to our ability of our government to function. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and and that goes towards the political participation, right? The polarization can sometimes affect people's uh, mentality and kind of maybe deters them stuff like that. Just kind of want to add that in. Um, but why should our youth? Because the youth is a huge problem right now. Um, we see in all in a lot of our uh, stimulus questions for our uh, multiple choice exams that. Uh, there's a lot of graphs that talk about um, youth being at a really all-time low for voter turnout and, like, the graphs, like, what is this graph saying? And the answer is always that youth don't vote. So being that that's such a problem, how do you suggest that we can kind of get out of that loop? Because a lot of the youth have I'm, – I'm, you know, we have we have change. And sometimes with the congressional stuff, we get stuck in, a, um, in like, the incumbent – the incumbency little stuck advantage incumbency advantage and it help it it stiffens up politics and then it it doesn't allow for a lot of change so allowing young students or at least a voice that hasn't been heard recently to flourish can maybe change something well i certainly would argue that it's imperative for people under 30 to be involved certainly the politics and certainly the solidification of policies that have not had change in the last 20 years are impactingly the youth disproportionately negatively um you know, we've talked about it. We joked with ARP, you know, the old yeah. people, uh, you know, Social Security, it's the third rail. You touch it, you die. But at the same time, college debt, as Monk says, young people coming out of college is at an all-time high. Um, so, again, when young people aren't part of that process, uh, there's a self-interest. Yeah. You, you get screwed. Uh, certainly the people that participate in the process the loudest that are most active are going to tend to get their way. And the people that are not part of the process very rarely get anything else. Yeah. There's a a whole new breed of exciting new politicians. I think that are getting young people in active involved. Uh, For example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is certainly along this new breed of politician that are really exciting young people that um, with the issues that she champions are, are, are the issues that young people think are important, such as the Green New Deal and, yeah. and the environmentalism. And, and certainly this idea of free college of, of, uh, of even Bernie. You know, Bernie really started this the leftist yeah. movement. Uh, some people might call it socialist, but certainly these are the issues that are important to young people. College tuition, the environment. And certainly we're having more and more uh, politicians speaking out and championing those young people issues. It's got to be the hope that, that, that these 
politicians are leading a movement of young people that are bent on shaking up the system a little bit and changing the system uh, that will benefit uh, this younger generation. Certainly, that's got to be got to be the hope. I think Pete Buttigieg, as far as running for president in 2020, has that same kind of possibility. Is he the Asian guy? No, he's not. He's the young uh, 37-year-old running for president who's the um, mayor of South Bend. South Bend? Yeah. Like Washington? No, South Bend, Indiana. Uh, I, I think I know. I don't know. I know like some guy from Texas is... That's Beto. That's he's he's got that same. Yeah. But I, I I would probably at least what I've seen so far, uh, I think Mayor Pete is a more serious candidate as far as those types of issues. I'm not convinced that Beto has the policy depth yet that young people want. Yeah, that can articulate a vision that's going to capture the imagination of young people. Um, wait to be seen. It's still early in the process. But yeah, uh, yeah. the point is that there is a new breed of politicians that are all under the age of 45, 50, besides Bernie. Yeah. Uh, Bernie's that, about to die. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's kind of that crazy uncle in the attic that everybody kind of jokes about that everybody looks up to. But certainly he's kind of unleashed and showed that there's a possibility of this movement taking place. And certainly when you look at this new breed of politicians, they are capitalizing on what Bernie started. Oh, yeah, and also I read uh, something that talked about how, like, the way that him and the, the Hillary conflict kind of ended, it actually made a lot of people pity Bernie. So that's kind of I'm dying, that's kind of off topic, but I well, kind of read something about I that. I really think that you're seeing this with Trump and with what your example is, is really kind of a revolt against the establishment of the parties themselves. Uh, you're, mm-hmm. see, you're seeing uh, kind of this... You know, I don't want to say it started with the Tea Party, but you certainly see a lot of the Republicans that support Donald Trump very angry at the rhinos or the Republican establishment, uh, and they don't like them just about as much as they don't like Democrats. And you're starting to see the same thing, that, you know, Hillary was the Democratic Party establishment, and that really uh, came through as kind of a bitterness that came out of the 2016 election and certainly out of the convention. you know, you saw the change in uh, the superdelegate system now. Um, uh, you're seeing kind of a revolt against the party establishment, wanting to take the parties in different directions. Republicans first in 2016, and I think we're starting to see this in 2020. For, uh, for the Democrats? Yeah. yeah. So much further left. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because you're talking about the, the whole like new um, younger generation of these politicians, and they happen to— be more on the socialist yeah. side of the uh, Democratic Party. Yeah, well, you saw a, uh, I think you saw a kind of a battle for the heart and soul of the Republicans in 2016. Yeah. I think you're going to see a battle of the heart and soul of the Democrats in 2020. Yeah, I, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I'm thinking about it now. That's super, that's like right in there. Well, and it's going to be interesting. Biden is going to throw his hat in the ring in tomorrow, mm-hmm. and it's going to be interesting to see the reaction of that group to Biden's candidacy and whether Biden's candidacy can gain any traction with that Democratic Party or has the Democratic Party now starting to move on. Mm-hmm. How can we start? How can we start becoming uh, more politically aware? What are some some ways that you would recommend that we – uh, get involved, get a little bit more passionate in the political world. And you probably touched on it about it. I'd probably say if you were just going to quick answer, like 
Um, un- pl- under- understand that you can do something. Understand that it's important. And, and so. I would still go back to it. All politics is local. Get involved in here in your local areas, even at your own schools. Uh, I'm s- shocked that, that we don't have more politics going on here just at the school level. We don't have a school newspaper. We don't have some of those things uh, that allow s- students to be involved and shape those types of things shape those types of things here at local. So I would say, again, right here at your own school and right here in your own community is great training ground, okay, to be involved and where you can make the most dramatic impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just now kind of getting into the final uh, quick question segment. So quick question doesn't necessarily mean quick answers. You can elaborate as much as you would like. That's probably preferred. Um, what are some – oh, wait, I probably already did that one. Um who inspires you the most and why? So if there, if you could maybe pin an individual um, that you know or that you've had experience with that has really kind of helped flourish the Darby that's here sitting in front of me today. I think without question my father. He's the person I look up to the most. Um, he's – and I, I say this in the most positive way. He's the most decent man that I know. And I don't mean that as, as a – what some people might think is, you know, just average. Well, he has an uncommon decency about what right and wrong and justice is. And certainly that is his patience with me as, as I went through life. And then those life lessons are something that um, uh, really guides me throughout life. life. Um, and probably why I look at the politics the way I do. Uh, certainly it shaped my political viewpoint, that, that decency, that idea of treating people uh, and, and the fairness that we need out of our political system probably is something that really guides, guides my political thought process mm-hmm. as well, not only in my personal life. So I, I would think without question my father. Um, so you talk about the decency, but obviously we're not going to, I'm not going to ask you about your political standpoints. Cause that's a no go zone, but yeah. maybe in like your teaching habits, like kind of give an example of how that decency transferred over to your teaching. Cause I think even for me right now, like, I understand what you're trying to talk about with the decency, but like, what does that mean to your profession? It's a great question. And I think it's the idea that I treat everybody with an uncommon fairness uh-huh. uh, and patience. Yeah, a lot uh, of patience. <laughs> well, my son may not disagree with you on yeah. certain times, but certainly with students it's a lot easier to be patient with them and always be kind of an uplifting rather than focusing on the more negative aspect. And certainly a lot, you know, it's easy to focus it on some of the negative aspects. Yeah. But trying to keep it that positive and trying to build people up and trying to look at that, I, I think is – the decent thing to do. And, and that's something that, that your father yeah. practiced with you and, and you were able to observe as a child. And, and certainly I know there are times that was really hard for him <laughs> yeah. to do that. But yeah, I, I could say that, you know, his patience and his decency and always trying to uplift me uh, and with a, a, that cheery disposition mm-hmm. and to approach problems and life that way is, is certainly uh, something that I've taken away from our father-son relationship. Yeah, I, I really like that. And that's something that I think I've had to teach myself. Um, so it's really cool that you were able to learn that from a father figure and be able to implement it um, in a different way because I can I can relate with that a lot with the way that I've learned to treat people, the way I've learned to be always uh, optimistic instead of pessimistic, the, the, the power that just always wanting to help, always wanting to do the best you can do, like what that brings to a, a your emotional side and the way that you just see everything. And it's, it's a huge, huge thing that 
uh, I would recommend for people just to to think about the good things in life, not the negative, to be optimistic, to treat everyone fairly, and to— And it's really hard to do that sometimes. It's it is hard, hard to do it. It's hard to have maintain that, <laughs> and certainly I am not perfect, and yeah, I don't yeah. maintain, maintain that 100% of the time. But certainly it's something that I strive to, and sometimes I need to step back and say, am I really doing that? Yeah. And, and catch myself from going that other direction. So, yeah, it's easy to, it's easy to fall in those traps. Yeah, but I, I think that even though it is easy, it's one of those things where if you can overcome it, that's just how much more, I, I would say, at least for me, it, it creates joy. It sure. creates happiness for me. Um so and maybe some are other some are different, but um, being able to overcome that is definitely a, a joyful act. Right. Um, and I talked about that, you know, how much I love my profession, how much yeah. I love getting up in the morning, and certainly you're, just, you're super optimistic. You're yeah. you're optimistic even to go right up in the board for two hours straight, and then <laughs> just get up there and wave your hands this way, wave your hands that way, be like, "Don't you understand this?" Yeah. But, you know, a lot of times I'm not even understanding what I'm doing. It's just it's just who I am. It's, it's just the core part of me. And a lot of times, like you make fun of me taking off my glasses, and, and I don't even know I do that. And just, I don't even know I do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think – but that that's definitely one of the things that makes you such a great teacher, though, just FYI. Like the, the passion is easily seen through all your students. I think that's the reason why you have some of the best test scores. I, I, isn't it like probably in the district you probably have some of the best – no, I, I don't know. I, I would I assume know. probably so. But again, I mean, I've always said the test is important, but the test is not the true measurement. Well, yeah, and again, yeah, the true measurement, and I'm going to say this now, is is what kind of differences are you going to make in your community years down the road? Mm-hmm. And so your test, okay, is not going to be May 4th. Your test, I will decide your grade on the day that I leave this earth. Yeah, Have yeah. you made a difference in your community? And if I can see what Jake is doing, he's improving it, uh, that's going to be your final grade. Mm-hmm. So, again, the AP test and those scores, those are fleeting. But what you bring to your community for a lifetime is something that's going to be there forever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um what is one thing the listeners listening right now can do before they go to bed? So kind of like a, a short, um, like quick commitment or low commitment kind of thing that you would recommend that the audience do that maybe you've done. Pay attention. Just pay attention to what's going on. Uh, I, I think that that's a minimal of what you can do is the understanding the environment around you, understand the plight of your fellow citizens, understand the issues that are gripping our neighborhoods and our country. Uh, those are the things that you can do without, well, anymore it's taking a great deal of effort uh, mm-hmm. with the proliferation of media. And, and, you know, there is fake news and trying to decide through all this is becoming a lot more difficult to become informed. But becoming informed and beco- becoming educated i think is something that we all can do on a nightly basis yeah uh, and, and as minimally uh in a democratic society what we should be doing but i think you talked about the whole fake news thing i'm not trying to get into that but even if you are consuming like uh, a cable news or, or a more narrow casted uh thing at least you are consuming a perspective yes i'd say that that that's better than none a and little I, is better than none. And I love your use of vocabulary. It yeah, shows that you understood yes. it. Narrow casting. Yeah, certainly uh, it is. But I, I would say that's even better when you try to balance it out. Yeah, you know, for sure. It's, it's 100% better to 
to get multiple perspectives and then to think about it and use your yes. own opinions, write it down in your own words if you really have to. Yeah, like, it's it's tempting to just to stay in your echo yeah. chamber, uh, to be reinforced that you're always right. Yeah. Uh, but you need to hear information that goes against that scheme of yours mm-hmm. uh, and to make you think. Um, but yes, I, I, I'd say any information is better than none. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, what is your favorite book and or slash, so you can do both, uh, or one thing that you highly suggest um, for a longer commitment? So not just like uh, checking the, the the nightly news real quick. But um, so like I said, you can do either your favorite book, you can do either a long lasting commitment, or you can do both. I would say as far as a long lasting commitment, find an issue you care about and an opinion on that issue. Join an interest group and be involved with that interest group. Um, you know, we talk about factions and Federalist mm-hmm. Ten. Well, and okay, ARP. yeah, 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 and ARP certainly. Uh, I'd say that that's something as far as a long lasting that you can be a part of. Um, favorite book. and by book, I mean like a nonfiction book. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I figured that you'd probably go there, but. Well, certainly the Federalist Papers, but <laughs> that's that's my nerd answer. That's my uh, government nerd answer. But it is but some brilliant you've writing. Of, you've read a whole bunch of other. Oh yeah, I mean, you know I've mentioned a couple or... of Hedrick Smith's The Power Game is is a classic for me as far as understanding that that real nuanced under the surface politics. That for me is a classic. Um, William Grider, Who Will Tell the People, back in the nineties, was a good book that I enjoyed. Um, Oh, there's so many good books. I like biographies. I've loved uh, yeah. the, the biography on Dean Acheson at the time, being a diplomatic historian uh, about the Secretary of State of uh, under Harry Truman. Uh, President Creation was one of my favorites is to read as far as a, uh, autobiography. Um, certainly the David McCullough's on Truman, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin on Nor- Nor- Ordinary Time, dealing with FDR. Uh, there are so many good ones out there to, to try to choose one um, that I'm not going to go into the nerd fest type book. Yeah, but again, yeah. the mass produced biographies, uh, autobiographies or about politics that is mass produced. Those are some of my favorites that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of expected that answer, to be honest. Uh, some other teachers talk like Miss Olson talked about the giving, tr- uh, not the giving, the lemon tree. And that's like, uh, uh, you know, about like the conflict in israel yes and i knew going in that it would just be straight politics yeah books. yeah and those are some of the great ones um but for sure i think it, it helps to just especially for someone like you who has this influx and just like this passion for politics in general it just helps to filter it just floods you right. with a bunch of perspectives and knowledge and ideas and and deep rooted concepts that probably well, just feeds your hunger certainly a couple of professors i've had i've, I've really enjoyed their books w lance bennett from the w lance bennett from the university of washington his uh uh politics the news of illusion is a great one explaining how the media uh constructs news stories and with the information biases that are that that's a classic in my mind uh chateau iongar and donald kinder um uh news that, that that's a great book as well um so there's so many of them out there that i've read uh, and i keep reading uh, i've got a couple of them that i'm reading right now one of the 1968 election i think the fire next time i think is the next is the title of the book it's about the 68 uh, election and certainly how that transforming that election was both primary and general election is what i'm reading right now that i'm really enjoying what was the 68 68 election yeah. was of course you had lbj uh dropping out of the race midway through after new hampshire 
Um, Then you had the fight for who was going to succeed him, whether Hubert Humphrey was going to run again. Uh, You had the the assassination of Bobby Kennedy halfway through the primary election after California. Then you had, of course, Nixon and and Nelson Rockefeller on the Republican side. before Watergate then? Yes, this was uh, the 68 election. Of course, that was right after the 72 election that Watergate took – that – came out yeah, yeah. it was before the 72 election that watergate actually okay, heard yeah. but that how transforming of election and we've talked about you know uh, these kind of a political alignments and how that really shattered that new deal political alignment that had taken place from the 1932 election of fdr and really made it more of a instead of we had a unified government under democratic control that really it ushered in the the era of divided government from then on out and so we entered in the political de-alignment. So we've mm-hmm. talked a lot about that in class. Um, that was the election that really shattered that that um, that stronghold right. of one party. Exactly. Of course, the, the Nixonian Southern strategy. And we talked about the black and black article that we read, uh, the rise of the Southern Republicans. And so yeah. that all really uh, came out of that 68 election that really transformed electoral presidential electoral pol- politics. It's what I'm really enjoying at the moment. All righty, so um, this, is be a, this is pretty much the wrap-up. Do you have any last uh, questions, comments, concerns, or thoughts you'd like to address uh, before we cancel it out? No, I, I really think it's important to simply say get involved. Be a part of the process. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I appreciate you taking no, the time out of your you, day for doing this. Thank you very much for this, having man. me. It's been a, it's been a great uh, experience for me, and, and I've really enjoyed talking yeah. politics with you. I've uh, enjoyed this, too. I hope the listeners can uh, get something out of this, too, and that way uh, you can continue spreading your grace to more than just a classroom. Well, I've enjoyed the discussion. All right. Have a beautiful day. Thank you. All right, once again, that was Scott Darby. I really hope you guys enjoyed this episode and it was able to bring some value to your life. If so, please follow me on Twitter at lights underscore show, and please leave a rating on whatever platform you are on. And thank you so much for listening.